You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. You can turn to the last book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation. And I'll give you a second to actually turn there. So turn to the very end of the Bible. Turn to probably some of the last pages in your Bible. Revelation 22, last chapter, last book of the Bible. And this is how church history ends. And so if you've been with us through these months, uh, which I imagine many of you have because you're the few, the faithful, the awesome uh, that are here this morning, uh, you've been with us through this series of church history that's been seven months long. And so today we're ending, concluding our church history. And so I just thought to remind us of this much bigger picture, Jesus says how church history is going to end. And here it is, Revelation 22, starting in verse 12. These are the words of Jesus. He says, look, I am coming. So Jesus is coming. Amen? Amen. And my reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Verse 13 says, I am the the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to eat from the tree of life and may go through the gates of the city. And then skipping ahead uh, to verse 20 It says, he who testifies to these things, the last verses of the Bible say, yes, I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. Amen. So let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we praise you. We worship you. God, we thank you that you do have all things in your control, that you are a faithful God, that we can remember your faithfulness uh, both in the past, both right now, and, and thirdly, into the future, that you have all things together As we conclude and think about the future of Christianity, Lord, we obviously know that you are in control. You are a good God. We worship you. We praise you. We love you. And everybody screamed. Amen. Amen. So, uh, anybody ever seen this movie right here? I was, raise your hand. So this this will show your age. Maybe you're one of the leaders uh, of the Mill Sunday School. How many of you remember this movie coming out in the theaters? Anybody? Oh, a couple. I, as a kid, uh, I'm a little older, uh, um, so I remember this movie in the theater. And this isn't Back to the Future. This is Back to the Future 2. Uh, and so they go, they go to the future, and then he tries to get back to the past. So it should be called Back to the Past, but it's not. It's, they got to do the sequel thing, so they call it Back to the Future 2. So if you remember, how many of you have seen the movie? If you've seen the movie, okay, everybody's seen it. Um, almost everybody. Uh, it's, it's the scene, lots of scenes of the future. And do you know what year they go to in the future? 2015. Somebody knew it. Well done. Impressed. 2015, which is just a few months away. We will be in 2015. And I want to know where in the world are those hoverboards? They only got like a couple more months, half a year to figure this out because Back to the Future said that there'd be hoverboards. There's a scene of like a flying car uh, that just like, like picks up and goes away. And there's scenes of like, uh, the, just the style is like really weird. It's like none of this stuff is probably going to happen in the next six months. Uh, to, so the Back to the Future 2 is correct. Um, in fact, there's a lot of people joking that the only thing they did get right was Marty McFly walks by this movie theater and it says oh, this movie is in 3D. And it's like, oh, actually, we do have 3D movies. Uh, so that, that's one thing that this movie did get right. Um, I did enjoy the movie. I won't pick on it too much. 
But it's, it, don't you think it's really hard to predict the future? And this movie maybe uh, shows it right. Here they are trying to entertain us with what the future could look like. And they've pretty much got it all wrong, except for, yes, we do have 3D movies. Uh, we don't have the flying cars. We don't have the hoverboard. We don't have the cool style that they thought we'd have, all these different things. We don't have that. That's not the way it is. They got too much wrong to be right. And so I thought about in this lesson... What we're doing is concluding our church history series that we've been in for many months and specifically going to talk about the future of Christianity. And I just thought, how hard is it for us to, to predict the future of what Christianity will be like? I typed into the Google searches, uh, like Google image, uh, futuristic church, got an image like this, like, oh, solar powered, uh, everything. Is, if you ever look up futuristic images, Look for this. Look for like defying gravity things. Like cars are defying gravity. Like roads that are just kind of like in the sky. It's like, does gravity cease to exist in the future? Because if there's one thing I can predict about the future, gravity would probably still be there. So this whole idea of hovercrafts and hoverboards and roads without any foundation or structure, that's pro- you know, if, you're, if you're predicting the future, that's probably not how it's going to look because gravity will still be around. But anyways, back to the point. What will Christianity look like in the future? Some of you are planning to get married. Some of you might have kids someday. Anybody, anybody know that they want to have kids someday? Anybody? There's a couple hands. Oh, there's a majority of hands. Well, if you have kids and your kids have kids, then picture this, which may be hard for you to do. You will be grandparents someday. Whoa, just blew your mind. And so what will Christianity look like to your grandkids? They will come to church. What will it be like? Uh, What will the future of Christianity here in Colorado Springs, United States, and the world what is the future of Christianity? And just to throw out, before we dive in, and I welcome you and give some announcements of what Christianity will be looking like, I think there's maybe two perspectives. One, I think when we look at the future and technology, it seems like things are getting more and more convenient. So it's like, oh, well now, you know, we've looked back a couple hundred years ago, no microwaves. Now there's microwaves. There's, there's machines that do your laundry. There's uh, phones that you don't even have to go to like a landline that's ridiculous, like just pull out your cell phone. It's just more and more convenient. And so there's this idea that in the future, maybe the Christian church will be more and more convenient. Maybe there'll be, I don't know, just things that make it more convenient. Um, And then there's this reaction to that, like, well, wait just a minute. Maybe we shouldn't make church so convenient and easy for people. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, even though we can, maybe we shouldn't do an online church. There's online churches out there, so you don't have to, you know, get dressed. You could have church in your pajamas, pull up your laptop on your bed, and just do church. And there's a, there's reaction to that, like, uh, that's not right. Maybe, and I'm kind of speaking to the figurative choir here, because here you guys are at 9.45 in the morning. Thank you very much. Um, but there's this importance of like, well, maybe we shouldn't make church as easy as we can, as user-friendly as we can. Maybe there should be something uh, that's organic, something that's old-fashioned, something that's traditional, something that's important of like literally showing up in the flesh and not just making it easy for people as an example. So anyways, the future of Christianity, I, I see it um, as, we can, as we get through this lesson today. I'm going to ask the question, do you see the future of Christianity as bright and shiny, or do you see the future of Christianity as gloomy and, and dark and drab. And if so, like maybe in your head you're like, oh, I see it as very bright. Or maybe some of you are like, I see it as very gloomy. What are the criteria by which you're judging 
the future of Christianity to make it either bright or gloomy. So that's kind of a bigger question today, but I wanted to welcome you to the Mill Sunday School. Thanks for being here. If you're new to Sunday School, welcome. Thanks for coming. Uh, We do have cards. Uh, If you want to fill out a card, you don't have to. You could uh, give us your name, email, uh, even phone number, and if you check the boxes, I can, I'll email you or call you if you want. We'll chat about other ways you can get involved and connected with the Mill and the Mill Sunday School. And by the way, if you don't know this, lots of us right after Sunday School go over to Big Church, uh, and it's, it's, it's pretty big. If you haven't been over there, it's big. So we, we usually, the majority of us, sit in Section 10 so we can find each other. So I thought I would announce that. And finally, New Life Friday Night is happening this Friday. There's, if you haven't, if you've been, uh, haven't been around the mill, you know, well, you don't know that the mill, the last mill on Friday night was Friday. And this week we're starting New Life Friday Night. And it's Brady came and talked, Daniel talked. Hopefully this isn't news to you um, that, that the mill is just inviting more people, all age groups on Friday nights. And so the real college ministry is... This, you're looking at it, you're, you're sitting in it. This new life, the mill Sunday school is, is not really changing. And so it's not really changing at all, actually. So we will continue to be the college ministry. And we, by the way, are not a service. And so there's this just kind of a maturing of, of the, the college community at New Life for very good reasons. And if you've ever wondered, oh, what's Joe think about all these changes? Well, I think it's really good. I think it's a really mature decision to not have it just a college service, but rather have services. Like when you go to church, it's all that's this generational service. But then, of course, have college ministry. Of course, have women's ministry, men's ministry. But there's this gathering. When we do a service, it's everybody. And then out from that are things like the Mill Sunday School, where we gather as college in 20-something. So anyways... Enough about that. We cool on that? We cool? I think we will grow to see this change as a very good change and a blessing to us. So, And one final announcement as far as uh, this change is happening. Uh, I think the mill, the college and 20-somethings community at New Life, uh, that, that, that is very important that we are a community. And this is our, our logo for groups here at New Life Church. And so I'm kind of making a call to you uh, to be a group leader. If you've ever thought about being a small group leader, well, now's kind of the time. Like, we need groups. We need community at New Life. Maybe some of you are already in a group. I was wondering, how many of you, let me define it uh, very broadly, as a small group that is either a dinner group or a Bible study or a group of you that kind of officially or non-officially hang out together and do something together, how many of you would say you're in a group of some sort? Maybe about half or so of you could. Um, especially along the front here. There's like 90% of the front. So that's, thank you for sitting in the front. Um, but I think it's, it is important to be a part of a group. Um, and and that, that is important, especially in our college and 20-somethings where our family, we often, uh, we, are, our, we would say our family is the group we are around. So anyways, those are your announcements. Let's get started officially with church history, concluding it. Here, here we are in May. We started this series in November December, January, February, March, April, May. Here we are finally concluding this seven-month series of church history. And if you've been around long for the ride, uh, you are all the better for it. I'm going to do a quick review in just a second. But finally, this is your last homework assignment for nerds. If you're a nerd, here's an alert for you. <laughs> last time we'll do that. So uh, nerd alert time 
super nerds, this is your last assignment for church history. We assigned this book seven months ago, Church History in Plain Language. And a few of you, uh, maybe a lot of you actually bought the book and we gave some away. And a few of you have been telling me that you've been keeping up with the reading, which I have been so awesomely impressed by. So these are the last chapters. This is your final, final assignment out of this book. But let me give you a discussion question so I can stop rambling and so you can look at your friends that are sitting at your table. And if you're sitting at a small table, jump in with a big table. Uh, The more the merrier for this. Uh, But this is really a pop quiz, especially if you've been coming these last seven months here and there. Uh, Pop quiz. Don't worry, I'm not going to grade you. So if your heart just started racing and you're like, oh gosh, back to high school when I wasn't ready for a pop quiz and the teacher called it. Uh, We won't grade it and you get to do it as a group. But I will ask you this, if you're up to the challenge, no Googles, no wikis, no cell phone data, interwebs of any kind. Just let the knowledge at your table answer this question. And so use the space if you got the notes. Use this. I just gave you a tiny bit of space, so you have to write very small. But make a, a timeline of some sort, starting with where the Bible leaves off. So after the, 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 the Acts of the Apostles, where the Bible leaves off, listing the most significant events of the church. So church history events. And if you're like, oh gosh, I don't even know where to start. Just think about five, five things, like five movements of church history. If you've been around the series, you could pro- hopefully think about just a few and then fill in some gaps. Um, I think less is more. Uh, I have, I'm going to give you 10 in just a second. So uh, if you start just listing every little thing, that, that, that would get very tedious. But list some significant things. So as a group, assign someone to be the scribe. Point at someone who has nice handwriting, can write very small. And if you don't want to be that person, put your finger on your nose. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then start list some things. And then I'll go out and hear some of your most significant events. Um, cool. Ready? Get set. Discuss. Uh, it sounds like some of your conversations are dying down. So I will ask you just to yell out some answers. What did you, what, name one event you guys put. The new life. <laughs> Way over there, new life. The most significant event in all of church history, the beginnings of New Life Church. And, and we would say, like we're New Lifer, we'd say, well, that really is significant for us. Uh, not to downplay, it's a great answer. But as far as worldwide Church, uh, you guys said that the Catholic Church, like the papacy and the rise of the, the Roman, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Good. What did you guys say? No, say it, Rachel. The Great Schism. Anybody remember that? Anybody else list the Great Schism? You don't even know what that is, half of you. Uh, well, you. Well, I'm talking to the wrong cloud. You probably do know what that is. Um, crowd. Uh, what, what did you guys put? The Reformation. Good. This table. The Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed? Good. Here, I'm going to list 10 for you. Um, so I'm going to put up this little chart, and you can kind of uh, fill it in if you, if you have the notes. Top 10 significant events. And I should say that this isn't uh, the list. Like, there's not the list of top 10 significant events. There's, it's a compilation of many lists that are out there. If some of you cheated and Googled it, you would find quite a few different people's lists when it comes to the most significant events. And we as New Lifers would, might list, like the, the group jokingly yelled, New Life is a significant event. Well, it is very significant for us as New Life. And we as Protestants might have a different list than, say, the Catholics. Might have a different list of most significant events than, say... Uh, the Greek Orthodox Church. And so this is a significant list that I composed this week and I kind of composed over the seven months of doing church history and teaching it. And so here it is, 
10, and I, I, would, I would stop and pause here to say that the next couple minutes of Mill Sunday School is going to get a little nerdy. Some of you might be like, oh, it's going to get a little boring. We're going to list 10 things. Yes, that's what we're going to do. But let me say this. If you get this, like if you could say this, if you've been with us through these seven months, if you could uh, say something about church history, then I would go so far to say, if, if you could list all these things, you probably are more knowledgeable than 90% of the other Christians that are out there. Most people do not, most Christians do not really know their church history. Christians know their Bible, um, and, and that's great. And I would say the continuation of God working on this earth, not like the Bible. We don't say church history is our Bible. No, we don't say that. But we do say that church history is the continued story of God's presence on this earth and what he has been doing and what his bride has been doing. So this is, I would say it's a really important stuff. So much important that we're taking the time to do this, even though it's going to be a little nerdy and boring. But you're here. You're nerdy. You're, you're, you're the people that like that, Right. Okay, so thanks. So here's the top 10 events uh, starting in. I'm going to go over these 1 through 10 are, are in the order of a timeline, uh, not in the order of importance. Um, but this first one is very important. Right after the Bible, stories take place. Of course, there has to be the compiling of Scripture. And I'm going to list it as the 100s to the 300s is when uh, Scripture was compiled and officially canonized will be a little bit later, but as early as the 100s, uh, the four Gospels were canonized and said, these are the standards. A guy named Irenaeus, a church father, said that he kind of made this comparison like the wind. He said, like there's four directions, north, east, south, and west. There are four Gospels uh, portraying the, the life of God and who Jesus was, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So the compiling of Scripture is a pretty significant event. Anybody list that one in your, at your groups? A couple of groups? Good. Uh, the compiling of Scripture. Number two, the conversion of Constantine. Did you list that? I hear some like, yes, we listed. Yeah, we got that one. A huge event. And you're, if, if you haven't been following us in church history, you might be like, who's, who's Constantine? Who's, who cares? Well, Constantine was a, a Roman emperor. And before this time, Christianity was illegal. It's the same Roman Empire that kills Jesus. It's the same Roman Empire that kills all the early church fathers and mothers. It's the same Roman Empire that kills the apostles. Uh, And so when Constantine, a Roman emperor, converts, well, then this changes everything. Christianity becomes legalized. Christianity will become the Roman religion. And that's a pretty significant event. And Constantine calls this council. And the council comes up with a creed. It's the first ecumenical council. Ecumenical means worldwide. And it was the worldwide, it was the known Christian world at the time. Every city got to uh, send a bishop over their city to come to this meeting and say, here's what we believe. It's the first time in history uh, of Christians from the world, at least the known world, came together and said, here is what we believe. We came up with a creed. And of course, this creed is called the... Nicene Creed. Good. So that's number three. In 325, this creed is composed, and it says that we believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, and it continues. And and many of you could say this creed from heart. We have this creed on our website, newlifechurch.org. We hold to this creed today as Christians. 
And they came up with this in 325. And it's, it's kind of like taking from the Bible what is there, what is truth, and, and composing it into this nice, neat creed that we could say as believers. It's pretty important still to this day as Christians gather all over the world, uh, whether you're Catholic or whether you're Orthodox or whether you're Protestant, you say, or maybe you don't say it in church, but you would agree to and hold to this creed. Many churches say this creed. Today's Sunday. There's churches all over the world literally saying this creed at some point in their service today. Um, pretty cool. Number four, uh, the monastic movement. Anybody list this? It's, it's, it's not really one significant event, but kind of this movement of as Christianity becomes legalized, people move out from the community and say, well, you know, if everyone, I use the air quotation, finger bunny quotes, uh, if everyone is a Christian, well, then the real Christians, we need to go out and, and really live for Christ. We need to become monks and nuns. That's what that word monastic means to be. We need to live outside of the world and, and be real Christians. So that's, that's, that's that movement that happens in the 400s. Moving right along, number five. Uh, someone mentioned, uh, Steve's table up here mentioned the Rome and the Catholic Church, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. A very big deal in church history. The, the papacy, the pope, the, the primacy of Rome as the city of all other cities to uh, be the authority of the church is very important. And if you're like, well, Rome, you know, the, we're, are we talking about the Catholics or are we talking about us? Well, we're talking about church history here, and the us, meaning the Protestants, won't come until a little bit later. That we, as Protestants, we won't come until the 1500s, and here we are in the late 400s talking about the papacy and the primacy of Rome over all other uh, Christian authority, and the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, being the, the bishop over all other bishops, so much so that he's given the name Pope, or in Latin, Papa, which means... Papa, Father, um, the Father over all fathers, the, the Bishop of Rome. And so that's pretty important. Not pretty important. That's really important as we've been tracking church history in the Middle Ages and who has the authority. Well, Rome had the authority. So stop. Look at it for just a second. If you've been daydreaming, pay attention. Uh, we're halfway through this list. How many of you would say, yeah, you know what? I've, I've heard those events. I could, I, I could have said that. How many of you are like, yeah, I'm tracking. This is good. Good. I think if you raise your hand, rose your hand, you are maybe 10% of Christians, maybe American Christians, that could say that much about church history. I think most Christians you talk to, many of them know their Bible really well, know uh, verses really well. But when it comes to church history, they're, they're illiterate. Uh, they don't know the stories. And you ask things like, well, why do we do this? And why does the a Catholic church do this, and why, you know, why do the Methodists do this, and we do this? Well, all those questions are answered by church history, and if you at least know the foundation, like those of you that raised your hand, well, then we're on a good track. So stay with me. Just five more to go. Um, so number six is Charlemagne crowned by the Pope. Did anybody list that as a... Nobody? I, I, I put it up here as more of a, that's the event but it signifies something much bigger, which is in the Middle Ages, this power struggle between Pope and King, between the church and politics. And if you look at the Middle Ages, you would say that there's really no separation between the church and state like there is today in the United States. It was all like the Pope had political authority. The Pope had like army authority in the Middle Ages. And that's a very different world that, that we live in. Did anybody at your tables list something like that, like this power struggle, popes, kings? No? Well, it's, 
if you think about the Middle Ages, that's a really important thing to, to notice, that there was no separation, that, uh, now I think maybe I'll give this analogy. Sometimes in the United States today, uh, Christians are like, oh, why can't the U.S. be more Christian? You know, you might say things like, oh, we were founded on Christian principles. We've gotten away from that. Why can't we get back to being a Christian nation? Why can't we be, you know, uh, this, this Christian nation where there's no separation of church and state? Many Christians would talk like that. And, and I would take a step back and say, well, in some ways, we as Christians had that in the Middle Ages. And if you look back and study Christianity in the Middle Ages— it was not all great. There was some pretty horrible things that were done in the name of Christ. These, these wars, pretty horrible things done, like heresy trials and killing people just for small differences uh, in non-biblical issues. And so when we as Christians have all power, like we did in the Middle Ages, I say we, like just talking about our ancestors as Christians, it's not all that great. And there is something to be said about uh, freedom of religion um, so that's all I'll say about that. Uh, number seven, the schism, the great schism, this table mentioned it, the split between Catholic and Orthodox. This is, goes down in history as maybe the very first big church split. I mean, church splits today are like a dime a dozen. We just split over anything. We're like, oh, I don't really like that guy. Oh, they don't have bagels. They have, I'm going to start my other church. We'll have bagels. We split all the time over the dumb things. If you, if you and your family have been a part of a church split, looking back, you're probably like, why did we even split? I just know that we did. And, and that, you know, we stopped going to this church, and we went to this church, and some other people joined us. And What was that about? And maybe you had some legitimate reasons, but I think most of the time it's over personalities, and most of the time it's over silly things. But this goes down as the first church split in history, and it's over... It's, it's basically over number five. Like, does Rome have all authority? Well, the Eastern Church said, no, Rome shouldn't have all authority. Uh, individual churches should have their own authority based upon the, the bishop of their town. And we're, we shouldn't all submit to what Rome has. And Rome is, was doing some pretty bad things. If you look back, we, we talked about some of these things. And so there was this official church split in 1054 that split the East and the West. And you could read about that. And we as Protestants, we don't really think about that because we think about our own church splitting, the Reformation that someone else uh, would talk about. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So let's move on. Number eight, just says the Gutenberg Bible, the printing press. Did anybody list this one? It's, you're all like, oh, I should have listed that one. Yeah, you should have. Because before the printing press, think about this. Think about reading your Bible. How many of you read your Bible this week? Good, lots of you. Now imagine if you didn't have a Bible, and the only Bible you could get a hold of was a Bible, it, let's, let's say before the printing press, let's say the 1400s, uh, early 1400s, no printing press, Bibles, how did, how did you print a Bible? You're like, oh, they had that, you know, the paper with the things on the side, and it's like, me, 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 they were printed out. No, they were handwritten. If you had a Bible in the 1400s, no printers, no Commodore 64s, no Word documents with spell check, no Xerox machines. If you had a book, it was handwritten. It was like, wow, it must have taken a while. Yeah, it took, that's the point. It took a long time uh, compared to the printing press. And so Gutenberg, fooling around in his, in his garage, invents the printing press and changes everything changes the fact that we as Christians can have a Bible of our own. 
And Martin Luther and others would translate the Bible into the native language of the time. But before that, you didn't have a Bible. Can you imagine, just stop and think, like being a Christian, for so many of you, means reading your Bible. It's like, what's, what's the biggest part of your Christian walk in your daily life? Well, I read the Bible. I, I let the Bible guide me. What if there was no Bible for you to read? What if the only time you got scripture was when you came to church and the lectionary was read and, and someone read through the lectionary? And by the way, lots of churches do a lectionary. It's pretty cool. It's a cool idea that you would, you would come to church and have a portion of scripture read. And um, if, if you want to know the facts about lectionaries, most lectionaries, the whole, the whole Bible is not read in a lectionary. Uh, I think it's something like 20% of the Bible is read. A good chunk of the Bible is read in like a three-year lectionary, but not the majority of it. And, and if you could just imagine being a Christian before the printing press, you did not have your own Bible to read the Bible and wake up and have your coffee and your Bible and you do a quiet time. That just wasn't possible. You did not have a Bible to read. And if you did happen to sneak into a church someplace that did have like one copy of a Bible and you tried to read it, it probably was not in your language. It was probably in Latin, and you didn't speak Latin. What language do you speak? American. So, <laughs> just kidding. So you don't, anyways, so enough about that. The, the Gutenberg press changes everything. Um, number nine, someone mentioned it, uh, the Protestant Reformation. I put down the date, 1517, the date that Martin Luther nailed the night. Remember when Aaron Higgins came in and Sasha Samuels wrote out the night? Remember when we had the 95 theses? Remember that? Um, that was that day that we talked about that. So the Reformation reforms the Catholic Church. There was some legitimately pretty bad things going on. The sell of indulgences, um, people buying and selling church positions, lots of church scandal. And the Protestants, the Protestants, reform the Catholic Church and, and want to create their own a, a separation of the Catholic Church. Kind of like what happens in number, where are we at? Number seven, this this Orthodox Catholic split. In some ways, it's similar. In some ways, it's very different. But that's uh, the beginning. I put the date 1517 as the beginning. Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses. But in some ways, you could say Protestant Reformation was 100 years, 200 years. You could say in some ways, we are still a part of this Protestant Reformation of wanting to reform the church and protesting uh, some of the things of the Catholic church. And by Catholic, I mean worldwide church. And so look at it. Everybody, look at the list. Maybe you've written it down. Would you look at it? Just look at it. Look at it. These are the nine things that have happened, very significant things that have happened to shape Christianity in the last, uh, at least according to this list, uh, 1,500 years. Here we are in 2014, so we've, we've, we've had some time pass between 1517 and here we are in 2014. What is the last event that we could put here. <coughs> Number 10 would be an event that happened between the Protestant Reformation and today. And I had different things all this week. I've been thinking about this lesson and thinking about, okay, what, what event would, would be the most significant between now, uh, between now and looking back to the 1500s when the Reformation. And I had different things at different times. At one point I had, uh, we, we had been talking about uh, pietism and John Wesley. So I was like, oh, that's a pretty big thing. So I had that on there. At one time I had um, this idea of uh, like a seeker-friendly movement. And, and by that, I, I broadened it out to, in the Catholic Church, Vatican II. If you know a little bit about that, in 1962, the, the Catholic Church got together and changed 
lots of practices that they did. Up until 1962, if you went to a Catholic church, so if you talk to some of your parents, your grandparents, if they were Catholic and they went to church, any Catholic church before 1962, what language was that service in? Latin. Every single service, uh, didn't matter where in the world you went to. I mean, if you went to a church in America where we speak American, before 1962, that, a, a Catholic church service was in Latin. And Latin is, it has been and is a dead language. No one, not that I know of, like speaks Latin as like a language. Uh, it's, a, it's a dead language. And so until 1962, Vatican II, they, cha- they said, no, churches should have um, services in their own language. And they made other changes. And I think we, as Protestants, usually get this idea of like being seeker-friendly, making church easier uh, to come to and more understandable for the masses and how can we be more relevant. So anyways, I had that at one point as number 10, but I think only time will tell. And so I, I kind of copped out. I put a question mark. Sorry to disappoint you. Um, I, I couldn't pick one single event. And I think time will tell. I think in a couple hundred years, we could look back and say, oh, what was that most significant event in the last 500 years You know, as we move a couple years, 100 years or so beyond those 500 years, we could look back and say, well, maybe the, maybe the great awakenings, you know, uh, of the American uh, church, maybe they were the most significant event, or maybe Vatican II was, or maybe uh, some denomination or denominational splits would, would be a very significant event. Um, so anyways, I kind of copped out. You could call me on it later, um, or now if you want. You're like, man, it's a cop out. What kind of is? But Let's take a second and talk, change subjects for just a second, not really change subjects, continue the subject and talk about the future of Christianity. We have about 10 or so minutes left, 15 minutes left of the Mill Sunday School. And what will the future of Christianity look like? We started today talking about Back to the Future 2 and that scene of the hoverboards and the hover cars. And we're like, uh, they didn't really get it right, you know, because they, they predicted the future one way, and it's probably, we're not going to have hoverboards. Sorry, we just probably won't have them yet. Um, <coughs> so what does the future of Christianity look like? Can we predict 100 years out what the church will look like in America? Can we predict 100, 200 years out what the church will look like in China or in Africa or different places of the world, the worldwide church? How will we as a church look different and so I want to present that kind of as a question to you uh, and your tables, and maybe afterwards I'll go out with a microphone and hear some of your responses. But I, I don't want you to predict, but rather um, maybe just list some defining topics of importance in shaping the future of Christianity. So I'm not asking you how, does a, how will it play out in 100 years, but I'm just asking you, what are the players? Who are the players? What, what topics are very important today that you see looking in the future saying, These will be big players in the future of Christianity. Maybe it's other religions or a people group or a place or an idea. Um, So to to prime the pump a little bit. So discuss that at your table. List maybe two or three different things of topics of importance, and then I'll go out and get some of your thoughts and responses. Ready? Get set. Discuss. All right. I have a, a microphone here. I would love to hear just some thoughts. You don't have to have it all figured out, but... What did your table say as far as, like, here's some major players in the future of Christianity? Thank you, Mr. Burton. 
Oh, we uh, well, we put down a milestone, I guess, for modern day, and that would be um, the expansion of technology in general. Me- How many of you put technology or something about technology? No one else at this table did. Okay, okay, there we go. All right, <laughs> good. So, like, what what will technology say? I mean. How many of you, be honest, don't carry a Bible because you have a Bible on your cell phone? It's like, you're like, man. <laughs> like, you just don't, like, the idea, the idea of carrying around a book anymore is like, oh, it's ridiculous. Why would I have paper? Like, Gutenberg is dead now. Like, why do I, I just have it in my pocket on my phone? And then what does that say about, like, looking up script? I mean, how many of you know what a concordance is? Anybody? Like, this is going old school. Like, when I... Before the internet, before the Googles, like if you wanted to know like, oh, where does Jesus talk about, let's say, where does Jesus talk about love? You'd have to find this book called a concordance and you have to open it up and like, like an idiot, you'd have to find the word love in the Bible. Then like all these listings of the word love in the Bible and you'd have to actually turn there like an idiot. Um, and now it's just like, if you want to know where it's at, you just Google it. You just go to online concordance. Anyway, it's totally rambling there. Yes. Thank you, guys. So major players in the future of Christianity. Well, we, we talked about some of the what are currently hot topic issues um, here in the Western church uh, that we believe the church is going to have to make a decision uh, and make a stand on some of these issues. Yeah, yeah. And however a denomination um, decides is going to determine where it goes in the future. But I also think... Two, we got to think on a global scale. The, the church is growing like crazy overseas. Africa yeah. is finally getting its social act together, yeah. combating AIDS and malnutrition and poverty, and the church is growing there. Uh, China is finally loosening its grip on the church, and the church is starting to grow in China. We're going to see a huge explosive growth of the church outside of the Western world. The church is dying in the West. Europe it's largely unchristian. And the United States is largely unchristian. We're a religious country, but we're not a Christian country. Mm. So I think stepping outside of the Western mindset of, oh, the church is going to be growing, and we're thinking, oh, within the the 48 states, um, the the mainland U.S., but we got to get out of that mindset because that's not where the church is grow- going to go. That's not where the church is growing. Yeah. It's, it's growing everywhere else. Good. Yeah, you said a lot of things. You started with this idea of relevance, this table. Uh, Nate and Sasha said, like, this relevance thing. Like, how, we need to be relevant, but at, at what point do we make a stand? And it's like, well, at what point do we not be politically correct and say, well, the gospel is, uh, it is, like, offensive. Like, it is, like, if you, if you don't, proclaim Jesus as God, well, then there's, where are you as far as salvation goes? Well, that's, that's a claim we as Christians make, and it's very offensive. And so, Jordan, did you have one last, you same things? Anybody else? One last comment, maybe? We good? Well, I have, along the lines of what Aaron said, I have um, just this idea of, like, Christian populations and this, like, growth charts of, like, where Christianity is, where we've been, so I, 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 I found some articles I was looking up, like, uh, and this is a very hard thing to do. Uh, I was looking up, like, Christian populations and how many people of the populations are Christian. And this is ridiculously hard to do because um, everyone gets to decide for themselves 
what they believe. And then it's, it's like you would talk to someone and say, okay, what, what, what are you? What religion are you? Let me check your box. And you, they might say, well, I'm kind of a Christian. I'm kind of this and that and that. So, well, well, which box do you want me to check? And they might say, oh, check the Christian box. You know, I, 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 I hang out with some um, Muslim friends sometimes, and I really don't go to church, but, you know, I think Jesus was a pretty good guy, so check the Christian box for me. And it's like, I wonder how many people in the world just check the Christian box because they just check the Christian box and just, they just don't know any better. And we, as, you know, Protestant, New Life Evangelical, Evangelical, excuse me, Christians who are here in the morning, like serious about our faith, would look at someone and say, oh, just check the box Christianity. Even though I don't go to church, even though I don't really read the Bible or maybe even believe the Bible, we would say, well, bro, you're probably not a Christian if you just, you're just you checking a box because you don't know what else to check. Um, but here's some pie charts uh, that I found, and I realize you probably can't read them from where you are. Uh, don't worry about that. <clears throat> it's, it's really just big numbers that that you kind of just have to take it with a grain of salt or actually maybe a whole bunch of salt when you look at some things like this. The one on the upper left um, is the worldwide chart of, of where people of faith fall. And it said this one says that 33.32% of the entire world's population is Christian. Something like 21% of the world's population is Muslim. That's the second largest re- religion. Then uh, uh, Behind that is Hinduism, 13. And then there's... Um, other religions, 12-something percent. Then there's non-religious, 14 percent. And like Aaron said, Christianity is growing in places like China and Africa. I read an article that said that by 2025, so that's just 11 years from now, China will be the largest, I want to say Christian nation. They might not be a Christian nation, but they would, they would be the most Christians are from this country, answer China, in 2025. So it's like U.S., the United States, I think we lead the world now as far as Christian population percentages uh, go. But China, maybe. And this is kind of just predicting the future, and it's hard to do. But this article came out that said, and it caused a lot of stir, that said by 2025, China will be the largest population of Christians on the face of the earth. Which is like, whoa, that's kind of weird to think about. It's weird for me to think about. You think of China, you think of communism, you think of atheism, um, you think of maybe even Buddhism or Hinduism, uh, Confucianism. You don't think of them being Christian. At least I don't. I've even been there. Um, but maybe in just 11 years, they will be the largest. I don't know. And then the, 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 the pie chart on the right here, that's religion in America. Um, and they're saying the blue section there, this, this particular pie, pie chart said that 80% of Americans are Christians. Does anybody else not really believe that? <laughs> Look at me too. I'm like, eh, it depends on your definition of Christian. And if you say you're a Christian versus like, are you a Christian by the biblical definition of a Christian? Like believing in the Bible, believing in the Nicene Creed? Because, well, I have a lot of friends who are Mormon and they're like, well, yeah, we're Christians. And you're like, okay. I guess, but, you know, you'd ask a Mormon, do you believe in the Nicene Creed? No. Do you believe uh, Jesus is God? No. And it's like, well, you're saying you're a Christian, but I just don't know. Like, how are we using the word Christian? Are we just uh, throwing it around? Anyways, there's other boxes up here. Unaffiliated religious is the next largest, the red. And then agnostic and atheist are probably the bigger groups that are growing. Like right now in the United States, atheism is becoming a very popular, I don't think it's a religion, it's kind of an anti-religion, 
But it is what it is, and it's becoming more and more and more popular. It's probably the, if you compared it to other religions, you would in some ways say that in the United States, atheism, agnosticism is the, is the fastest growing religion in the United States, if you considered it a religion, which I don't know that you would. It's, anyways, um, more and more people are saying, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know that I believe at all, or... I'm spiritual, but I'm not a religion. I'm non-religious. And I think if we look at the world, we'd say Christianity's growing. If we look at the United States, where we live, we'd say Christianity is on a decline. And so in conclusion, to wrap up, I, I asked you at the beginning, you know, how do you see the future of Christianity? Do you see it bright and smiley, like the sun there? The clip art, apologize for the clip art, um, but I thought that's cute enough to use. Or do you see Christianity as the future, as gloomy, and maybe sad? And I think if you looked at the United States, it's just as far as population goes, and Christians, uh, and people becoming Christian, well then you'd probably say on the right-hand side, it's, it's probably looking a little glim. It's probably looking gloomy as far as people becoming Christians, as far as the large population goes in the United States. Maybe you've looked at the worldwide, you'd say, well, Christianity in the world is actually growing because of China and Africa, uh, large numbers of Christians, uh, people becoming Christians there. But then you maybe just take a step back from that. I, I, gave, I, I, I did a church history uh, class for Kings as a professor, and I gave this assignment. I said, uh, at the end of the class, I said, what do you see Christianity doing? <clears throat> do, you, do you see Christianity as bright? Do you see Christianity, the future of it, <clears throat> as, as gloomy? And why? And the response is the papers we got, I got back from that class. Very thoughtful presentations of why people thought it was either gloomy or bright. And it didn't, I don't think anybody talked about the growth of Christianity as far as population was concerned. But people talked about in some ways, they talked about Christianity being bright because, well, it's going to be a call to real Christians. Like, even though Christianity is declining in America, there's going to be a call to, to Christians. It's going to be harder to become a Christian. And they said, well, that's actually a good thing. And that goes back to, like, day one in November when we started church history. Uh, I talked about how hard it was to be a Christian in the early church. So this is, I, I guess, ending with how we began seven months ago. And the early church... Uh, underwent persecution. So much so that the real Christians had to stand up and be ready to die on account of being a Christian. And that, of course, is a very horrible thing. But even people in the early church said, you know what, maybe that's not so horrible. Maybe persecution is just what it is. And that actually is a growth. It is the separation of who really is a Christian. If you're being persecuted... Well, then you really have to decide, am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? And I put, as far as a quote goes, on the back of your notes today, a quote by a church father, Tertullian is how you say his name. Uh, He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That when people are made to decide, are you really a Christian? So much so that there's going to be persecution, either physical harm, so much so that there could be even death if you proclaim Christ. That's the seed of the church. That Jesus died. The early apostles died on account of believing in, in God. And, and we in the United States have been given so many freedoms. Today or tomorrow actually is Memorial Day. Celebrating uh, fallen soldiers and remembering them. And um, 
I just think about, like, we aren't persecuted, maybe like we should be, maybe like in other parts of the world for our faith. We, we do, thank God, have it easy. We can gather and meet in freedom. Praise the Lord. But so many other places, at so many other times in history, that was not the case. And I don't know, maybe going on a limb, maybe, maybe we're missing something as far as being a Christian. And maybe as, as the United States grows less Christian and there will be more persecution, maybe, according to Tertullian, at least, that maybe the blood of the martyrs, the blood of those being persecuted, will be the seed of the church. So with that, let's, let's pray. Let's thank the Lord. Let's thank him for his faithfulness. Lord, we do come to you this morning, and we, we thank you. We praise your holy name that you are a good God, and that throughout church history, we've, we can think about you being faithful in, in times where we, as Christians, were unfaithful, at times where we, as Christians, uh, had some things right and glorified your name. You were still faithful in those times of, of sadness and gloom and darkness, and you were still faithful in those times of, of harvest and, and good, goodness and godliness. Lord, we praise your name. You're a holy God in our life now, as you were, and you will be a holy God in the future. We praise your name. We love you. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.